0: If you ask, do I know what I'm doing? No. <laughs> <laughs> in most cases, no. What I've learned, at least, that being an entrepreneur is really hard. But I thought that, hell, if, if we don't do anything, we're anyway going to be in bankruptcy in a couple of months. There was a company that probably turned me, uh, turned me 20 years older, at least from the physical look and feel. It was really a learning curve.
1: Hey Tommy, how are you doing? How's the Flying Finn? Good.
0: Actually, you're referring to Flying Finn. I presume you're referring to Paavo Nurmi, uh, the Olympic winner. Just sitting uh, in a building he built. Uh, It's a pretty, how should I say, musky weather uh, outside. Uh, Rainy, cloudy. Uh, sitting here in Helsinki uh, at Pitäjenmäki industrial area. So what are you doing there? Uh, our of- offices, Sniffy's offices are located here and um, we have new people who we just hired and uh, they are on a onboarding
1: phase. So I'm uh, helping to onboard our new employees. What kind of name is uh, Sniffy? Because I only know the Sniffer and that's a TV series from (laughs) Ukraine.
0: Yeah, that has nothing to do with that. Uh, That's more to do with uh, sniffing. So uh, there's actually a funny story. I I met Risto Lähdesmäki, uh, who's the CEO of uh, Idean. we, We met in Silicon Valley and... I had a bit of a, no, a bit of a flu at that time. And I started my pitch to him uh, by by sniffing up my snore. Uh, And he he started laughing immediately. And uh, and understood, he said later that he understood immediately what the uh, whole idea of, of the brand Sniffy was, that it's sniffing data. Uh, but yeah, that was more an unlucky, unfortunate <laughs> mishappening. But but yeah, uh, I really got the idea that we should maybe be using that more in our pitches. But
1: you're really into the marketing. So is that actually after the fact type of uh, justification for the name you just made up a good story, or was that actually the real story behind the name?
0: No if we're really honest so so the story behind the name was we started back in 2015 uh, with my co-founder or the other co-founder Niko Naka and, and we just decided one evening that today we need to come up with a name and we there was plenty of different names and at that time sniffy just sounded good to us uh, so there's and the domain was free uh, not even the .com. We were so hung up to that that Sniffy is a good name. So, so we I think we started with .fi. Now nowadays it's Sniffy.io. Uh, every self-respecting startup uh, seems to have. Uh, but I, I think someone still
1: owns the .com. <laughs> so. How's the pricing? That's what you're doing. And what do you have learned? Uh, how has it changed from the very beginning to the way you're now? Because you, you've been growing. Uh, I don't know. Do you have 12, 15 people already?
0: Yeah, something like that. Close to, close to 20 if you take all, oh. all the uh, part-time, uh, part time not, not freelancers, students who help, help us as well. Uh, we started with uh, three people. Uh, started working three years ago, uh, so I was doing interim management. Nico was still in school, uh, uh, studying to become a, a medical doctor. So once he graduated, I ended up uh, one of my interim uh, interim projects. So we started. We were three people. Uh, yeah, it's been growing quite fast, uh, although maybe not as as fast as many of the uh, hot and busy uh, startups. Uh, but but still, uh, significant growth for three years. And what we really do is pricing automation. So when we started, we actually started uh, the whole idea from search engine optimization. I thought that that would be a brilliant idea. Uh, and we did, did do... Uh, a, in a way, SaaS software (laughs) that could have helped you in the uh, search engine optimization. But we understood quite quickly, quite bluntly, that our solution would be just one of the uh, ones that are going to be dropped off fairly soon. Uh, But at that time, we noticed that we had a, a small technical innovation later on uh, something we could have left at that but yeah we started studying more and more and then we pivoted uh, a couple of times uh, to really find the edge and now now we are already on that that there are companies that use our service uh, for automating their uh, all of their pricing so so that's the vertical that we are
1: destined to are you doing Retailers, or what's the segment you focus focusing uh, on?
0: Retailers, but more importantly, e-commerce players. Because, because e-commerce as such, it's something today that the power is really on the consumer. It, it's about mobile phones. By 2022, this estimates that 73% uh, of all uh, shopping is done on mobile phones. And if you think of it, If if you think more clearly how you, for example, as a person, how you buy online, so you do compare. You spend a lot of time to compare. And and there's a significant difference that earlier on when we only had brick and mortar stores. So you chose a retailer and then you chose the product and bought it. But now it's the other way around that you actually choose first the product and then you start to uh, find out who of the e-commerce players, so the retailers in a way, uh, who is going to be the optimal, optimal one for you.
1: So how can I do that more clever? Because you on the other side of the, you know, you on the retailer side. So, you know, tell me all the secrets. How can I find the best deals? What should I do?
0: Uh, no, it depends, of course. It depends a lot of, uh, on the verticals. Well, one of the critical aspects is to really understand the market pricing. Uh, there are in many in many industries you have players who say that they are always the cheapest, uh, but it means that they've narrowed down uh, their market to few players that they all, always want to be the cheapest from, and then they fight with, I don't know, twenty cent. Uh, Price drops, uh, but it doesn't. Uh, it doesn't make any difference. If you find it, you can still find the product cheaper in, uh, in Amazon, for example. But they won't match it to that. So, so local players they still uh, justify their own market. So it's better as a consumer to really understand uh, what are your options to buy from. I mean, it, it doesn't have to be local anymore. And I honestly mean that with mobile phones, the local has become global.
1: If you're a small business owner or you're doing e-commerce, what have you learned from the pricing and and has the dynamic pricing we know from the airlines and and these other industries? Is it coming to the regular t-shirt shop soon? What are you going to expect? To some extent, yes.
0: We, for example, are already starting with our first like, pilot customers to run our uh, enforced learning uh, algorithms to, to really test what's the optimal price for a product. Uh, but dynamic, uh, such as air, airlines, um, hard to say. For example, for airlines, it, it's a lot to do... Uh, first of all, of course, with the demand, but at the same time also supply, and there's huge systems that the whole uh, traveling traveling agencies, airlines, they share uh, similar similar uh, systems, so that like booking systems and others. So that kind of uh, sharing systems you don't have in other industries that well. So for that sense, maybe not uh, very similar, but are T-shirt shops going to change their prices uh, dynamically against market prices? So yes, uh, they absolutely will, uh, but how common it will be in, let's say, next 12 months? So maybe the biggest one starts, uh, but the smaller ones probably follow a bit late.
1: You mentioned this is your fifth company uh, and you were already, you know, doing many, many many things before, uh, but still you need to pivot. Mm. Why is that happening? Don't you already know what you're doing?
0: No. If you ask, do I know what I'm doing? No. (laughs) (laughs) In most cases, no. Uh, So what I've learned, at least, that being an entrepreneur is really hard. Uh, And could be, very well could be that it's me, uh, it's my skills, uh, uh, my concentration, my intelligence uh, could be. But I I do think that it's as hard for anyone else, uh, for for everyone else. uh, And therefore, it is something that you, I've always said that. let let me give you an example. I have a lot of friends who say that they, they could you know they could start a company if they had a good idea. And then in most cases I have to be blunt and tell them that okay, then you're not going to start a business ever. Because the, the thing is that none of the ideas no, okay. Uh, let's be let's be honest. One uh, that was the V in the water brand that actually became in the end a water brand. Uh, but other businesses are such that you start, uh, and and I feel that it's healthy that you start from somewhere, start testing, and then when you notice that hey people aren't interested in my idea, but they are actually interested in a couple of the sub ideas. So then you start to pivot. You pivot a bit or you pivot a lot. Uh, it depends. Uh, in, in Sniffy's case, for example, we did uh, search engine optimization first. Then we did market intelligence. It sounded sexy. It was really cool. Something that everyone thought, that, hey, that's really cool to work on and blah, blah. But then in the end, everyone wanted to try. No one bought it. Simple as that. And then when uh, I read again one consultancy report we had bought. So there was different verticals that they uh, you know, recommended to us and, and also recommended against. So I took one. I thought, OK, here's price monitoring. That sounds like a, a vertical we could do. That's something that's standardized at least. There's a name and there's a price. Uh, and and it was something that they explicitly recommended that we shouldn't go, but I thought that hell, if if we don't do anything, uh, we're anyway going to be in bankruptcy in a couple of months. So so we did a pivot and in two months coded night a day a new product, and by the time we got finished, we got our first customer who still uses our service and and I remember they paid 84 euros and 90 cents uh, a month but I, I I felt that okay someone actually bought the service so now now we are on to something and then we started developing it with with customers and every month we got more and more customers and by the end we already had in six months we had a five-figure monthly recurring revenue. So I believe that many of the entrepreneurs who start businesses, they are uh, either too self-confident on their idea, which is, of course, understandable, but you should be be aware that your logic is your logic. You might be romantically in love with your own, own idea. That probably if you... Watch a bit as an outsider, you notice that mm, that's not maybe what people want to buy. So listening to customers and then being really, uh, you know, ready to make a change, I think that's uh, that's something that makes uh, entrepreneurs successful. I truly believe it.
1: Uh, a few notions uh one of them is that do you always do exactly the opposite what they recommend to do in those reports and the other thing uh is that um when is the right time to do the pivot because you know it's like okay things are not working but when it's like that you just have to you know double down and, and have some sisu crit and and just you know keep on doing till it works and uh, or, you know, when is the time that, that you to realize that, you know, this is a false game, this is not going anywhere, and it's a fine line, and it's easier to see, you know, before or uh, afterwards, but not, you know, when you're in the middle of it.
0: That's a good question. Um, now I've always somehow felt it in my stomach. It, it's a gut-wrenching feeling, <laughs> that you somehow, you notice that mm, this isn't going anywhere, that that um, I can tell myself maybe a couple of weeks still uh, that it's not working. But for somehow, it, it's like in when you really get in, uh, or when you find someone that you're in love. So, so how do you explain that? Are you in love or not? You know it. And it's the same uh, with unsuccessful ideas. You pretty much know it, Uh, if you are open enough for yourself it's it's more that if you're in denial that uh, no people aren't just getting what we do Uh, but if you're honestly open to that that "Mm, maybe I'm maybe I'm not right in this that it's better to change so so then you definitely feel it but somehow uh, in this case for example so if if Everyone wants to try and, and no one's going to buy and then there's cash flow for two months. So that's probably a, a point where you need to pivot. The, it's simple as that.
1: So have you learned to become better in that over time? Mm,
0: yes and, and uh, that's maybe one of the things I think if, uh, if someone would ask what you're good at uh, so I, I think I'm really good at doing things uh, or, or changing my plans. Uh, and that's that's often something that really even annoys people, uh, that they don't feel that I'm uh, in line uh, with my thoughts and plans. But the thing is that I, I believe that if I try five times, and I find the right answer, so it's better to do that quicker than you do it once with uh, sup- superior planning, because the likelihood that in a very chi- chaotic world you could do planning that actually in the end works uh, it's more unlike uh, it's more unlikely event than me, for example, uh, doing uh, very rapid tests with the market. I, I mean now tests. Okay, do something, show it to the customer and ask if they are going to buy. If no one's going to buy, then you know you aren't doing the right thing. So, so I, I personally think that it's better to do uh, things five times and quicker than someone do it for, for the one time and very well planned.
1: You mentioned there was one thing as uh, from an idea that really worked for you, and that was a van. You, if I sort of paraphrase, you were selling tap water to the prestigious uh, places in the world. How did that came about?
0: Yes, <laughs> There was a that was a company that probably turned me uh, turned me twenty years older. Uh, at least from the physical uh, physical uh, look and feel, uh, it was really a learning curve. So, so when we started, uh, I had just sold one company uh, that I had, a marketing agency, uh, and we were at that time we were moving to Australia with my that time uh, girlfriend, and and we already got the visas. Uh, And at that time, uh, somehow I started talking with my friend uh, that we had both been in uh, in different restaurants uh, and had ordered a bottle of wine and we got plastic bottle uh, to the table, plastic bottle of water to the table and both felt they was wrong in Finland. It, it was somehow uh, something that uh, didn't belong to that setting. And then we started uh, started uh, developing the idea. A week later, we had a, a business going. And luckily or not, uh, we built a brand that even... Uh, it became the house water of Harrods. Uh, and uh, it was... If I remember right, it was named one of one of the most prestigious uh, water brands uh, by Forbes. Uh, we were uh, sponsoring, and should we say politely, an erotic uh, photo uh, exhibition in a, in a that kind of uh, upscale sex shop in London. Uh, we were there main water sponsor of Nightwish on their world tour so we did a, a lot of different kinds of crazy ideas uh, and we never did leave to uh, to Australia so yeah that was really a, an interesting time
1: uh, as such. Can you Describe a bit how did you manage to get to the Harrods and and you know what are the steps from basically starting the company just with you and your, your friends and a laptop and, and then just having a premium product in the market. How did you pull that up?
0: Oh, um, to be honest I'm not even sure anymore. Uh, it, it feels like we tried everything uh, but if we sum it up, uh, so what we did, uh, we decided early on that everything we do must be something we as persons, uh, the founders, we find meaningful, fun, uh, and worth, worth doing. So, so that was also the reason why we had different kinds of uh, unbelievably uh, how should I say obscure marketing ideas? Uh, one one example, for example, we we were standing uh, standing uh, outside uh, Hotel Klaus K in Finland, and one of the uh, founders, uh, Antti Eklund, at that time had painted. Uh, Paintings, and the reason was that all the because we got fame quite early on, uh, all the uh, telesales people called me and offered media space, <laughs> and I said to my uh, uh, founders that the only thing we had afforded uh, was to paint our own adverts and sell them to someone that we were at that. Uh, hard times so so that actually uh, sounded so funny so meaningful and and so somehow uh odd to us that we started painting those pictures and then we uh talked to mark squark who was the general manager at klaus k at that time so i said to mark that hey can you give me for free the hotel, and maybe even, you know, offer champagne or something. If we do an exhibition of paintings here, and we sell those paintings uh, for charity, and he loved the idea, I said immediately, yes, well, you can do that. And we painted pictures, and we we took the price, because it was uh, in Helsinki City Center, There's a, there's a street called Boulevard, and it's one of the most uh, expensive streets. So we took the one square meter price of, of boulevard uh, and took the same equation uh, of price to the paintings. So so the uh, size of the painting was in exact proportion to the boulevard uh, square meter or the price of the square meter. And we sold total strangers uh, some friends as well but we sold those paintings in one evening uh, for 10,000 euros for people visiting to coming to eat to the dinner to Klaus K and we gave uh, that sum to charity so, so it was just a uh, how we did it, it's impossible to say but that really gives you the idea that we were just so passionate to do fun meaningful things that we all felt that was nice to do that it really started to pick up and and at some stage it turned into a brand
1: then you were ramping up Uh, you had a some uh, demand already piling up and and then you realized that this is not the software business you need to actually do something in order to you know provide what you already sold what were the pain points there
0: Oh, oh! <laughs> so, um, no, anyone who's doing uh, who's done manufacturing knows that nothing is easy. That's those are concrete things, and if you have a problem, it's never a small problem. It's it's simple as that. And and we started. We uh, that was probably the main one of the main. Uh, decisions we later on could have done differently, but we chose uh, to go with a bottling plant that was uh, up north and it was fairly small. I mean, the people were genuine. Uh, they they did everything they could uh, to, to make it happen. So there's nothing on that, but meaning that we could have done differently that maybe going with a bit bigger choice, uh, we could have gone a bit further because we ended up uh, fixing a lot of uh, that kind of everyday problems instead of building a brand, building international sales channels and, and such. But uh, the biggest biggest hurdles was that uh, the, the equipment we used, it was... Uh, it was too slow. So I think we produced something like 1,600 bottles an hour early on in the best case. And, and the real level we should have had was like 30,000 bottles an hour. So, so what we ended up doing is we, we went through with different bottling plants, all the breweries in Finland, and you know called everyone. And by the end of it, Uh, I managed to buy uh, some used uh, equipment from from a a person I knew. Uh, It was a a bigger bottling plant. So we bought it from their trash that they they had already uh, promised for for someone who bought it for for like a a pure iron or pure steel value. So so we bought like uh, different kinds of equipment and build it uh, by ourselves and by the end of it uh, it really was fast but at that stage I already felt that uh, it had been such a struggle that uh, somehow uh, we just at that stage we we thought with uh, the investor that was uh, in the business that they wanted to go a different way so so they bought my my part of it but that was probably the hardest, uh, building really the production. And that's something that I've always said to everyone who starts anything concrete, that, that the production needs to be top top notch, otherwise it won't fly.
1: At one point you were a bit eager to sell something and you didn't have it. And, and then you needed to go to Germany. And, and there was also some colorful happenings happening there. If yeah. I remember correctly.
0: Yeah, I remember it very well. Uh, it was before the launch. It was summer, was it two, 2007, yeah? Um, maybe May at that stage. It must have been May. Uh, I got a phone call from uh, a very well-known business and political person, uh, Risto E. Penttilä who was organizing a European business leaders' convention. And he was eager to buy uh, our water for that event. And at that stage, uh, I was so, I don't know, somehow eager, (laughs) so eager to sell the water that I really forgot even uh, what I was doing. So I actually sold him uh, a pallet of water. I, if I remember right, it was something like 600 bottles. Uh, and when I end the phone call, I noticed that it was the date of the actual conver- convention was uh, up to a month before I even was promised to get the first empty bottles. And I became, of course, a bit panicky because I understood that there was a, a, bit, of, a bit of a problem. So I called the uh, director who was uh, running uh, the Owens, Illinois factories in, uh, in Europe and, and explained to him that we, we have a serious issue. That I've sold the uh, products already and, and honestly, I'm getting the empty empty bottles from you a month later. So is there anything we can do uh, to make it happen? And I, I still remember how, how really uh, angry uh, he was shouting to me and I, I really, he lost his temper totally. <laughs> he said to me that, who do you think you are? And I probably tried to explain that a small boy from Helsinki, but in the end, Uh, he managed to to somehow got it from, uh, if I remember right, I might be wrong at this stage, but it was either Pepsi or Coca-Cola, one of these big brands that had a a, a production time slot and they gave us an hour before their shift started. So when they were heating heating up the ovens, it was a glass bottle. So when they were heating up the ovens, they started producing uh, first-hour bottles. And, and we got that 1,200 or something bottles. And I still remember uh, when... when we, because we, we knew that there was no, no other way to really uh, get in time uh, because it, it was roughly a week before the event. Uh, so, so me and my uh, co-founder at that time we took a van and drove through uh, Sweden, no- uh, Sweden, Denmark, and Germany, because it, it was in uh, Germany, the plant, uh, and then took the bottles and started heading back immediately uh, to Helsinki. And I still remember there was a guy who didn't speak even uh, uh, any English, and he was uh, loading the van. So he raised first the one pallet, and I noticed my van's uh, springs were uh, lowering a bit. And then I was so greedy; I thought that okay, hey, throw in the other pallet as well because there was two pallets. He lifted in uh, in the van, and the the, the, the springs went totally bottom. And and he jumped off from the uh, truck and and came to me and said. No Helsinki, maybe Hannover. And I, I still remember my, my face was totally red. And I said to him, that okay, take the other pallet away. And we left, left there immediately after that. Drove back to Helsinki and, and everything went well. Uh, but it was Friday evening uh, and I got a phone call uh, that day when the European uh, Business Leaders Convention was starting uh, on Saturday. So Friday evening, roughly around uh, half past five, I got a phone call that, hey, otherwise, uh, very nice, uh, but your products aren't here. They should have been in a hotel in Helsinki. That They aren't here. And I like, no, it should have been. Uh, so I actually what I had to do was to, go and looked it from uh, the logistics center that actually you we used uh, to deliver the water and and it took me 45 minutes at that logistics center to find our pallet and it was thrown in the trash whoops it was thrown in the trash and it was about to be uh, dismantled and And I was asking them, what the hell is this doing here? So there was a pallet, all the uh, pallets have a small note where it's heading. So that's been ripped away and no one knew what the uh, products were. And and I uh, managed to take some driver that was about to leave home. Uh, so, So I somehow somehow maybe positively manipulated him to, to help me. And, and we drove those by eight o'clock in the evening. Uh, we had unloaded the pallet to the hotel. So that was a good example of how very well thought planning and execution didn't work at all. And by the end, we were so passionate that we managed to get those bottles there. And that was, I think that's been a guiding light in everything uh, as an entrepreneur I've done, that you really need to give all you can. And that's only, a, then you only have a possibility to succeed.
1: A couple of weeks ago, I had uh, Ville Tolvanen, um, digitalist uh, in my show. And Ville told that everybody should be the, uh, a lighthouse of their mission and really become a brand, uh, but you just recently told me that it's so hard, and and you know just it's, it's easy to say that, but you know that the reality is something else. So, what's your response to Ville, or what's your take on the matter?
0: Uh, no, let's first say that I truly appreciate Ville. There's nothing to it. Ville is actually my actually my first ever customer. Uh, he was working for a company. Uh, and um, when I was a sales guy in, in the first first job I, after graduation, so he was the first first customer I ever had. Very very interesting person with good good ideas. but again, there's a bit of simply uh, it's a bit simplistic view to say that um, that you should be. Of course you should be the lighthouse. And believe, if, if someone has shown how, how you should do it, there's nothing to it. Uh, but I've now done, what, five companies, uh, my own, uh, and then as an interim manager, uh, also helped other companies to build their brands. And I have to admit that probably branding, marketing, it's one of the hardest things to really get spot on. And uh, one of the hardest things is to keep uh, pounding that message. Be passionate about what you do. As in in Villes' case, he's passionate. <laughs> There's nothing to. Do. He's really passionate. But understanding that branding is all about meaning. And how do you build a cohesive understanding of? how we are going to be meaningful for our customers that takes time that takes huge amount of time Uh, that takes also trials and errors so to say that you should be to build brand out of yourself of course uh, it's easy to say but then how do you do it it is uh, at least i've noticed that it's it's a years of work getting into the mind uh, of of your customer and understanding what are the real things they appreciate and how you can simplify your message to the hilt so that they will understand and and you can easily communicate it on all levels of your uh, organization. Because I, I truly believe that brand, when we talk about brand and branding, it has nothing to do with the visuals or marketing or, or it, it's about it's about everything we do as a company. Is this uh, something that we can stamp uh, the sniffy brand on it? So that's that's why I feel that really to get uh, good branding, it's, it's harder. And I don't know, that's probably one of the areas we think haven't been that good earlier on. Uh, but I think we are improving. We understand how much work, how much cooperation inside the company branding needs uh, to really become an essential driver of the growth. So we've been very good in, in creating good products uh, but it's still a long way to build brands.
1: What are the parts uh, in your life that you're struggling with? What are the sacrifices you have made? That was a question Hampus Jakobson mentioned in, in, in his interview, and, and he finds that very interesting question to ask from people who have been doing things and being successful as well.
0: So, um uh too often, uh, that I've spent too much time, uh, working. I think that's, uh, it, when you work a lot, it's hard to understand where's the boundary of the next 20% of my, uh, investment, uh, will be useless because I'm too tired. Uh, so. So that's probably one thing that I've, uh, I have been there for the family. I have been for, for there for my, uh, my spouse uh, and my loved ones. But I honestly think that uh, that's somewhere that, you know, worked hard. Uh, then also I think that I've sacrificed on other fronts uh, that I haven't been looking after myself uh as I should so those are probably the two most critical ones they doesn't they don't sound that uh, sexy but those could be if 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 you would continue and continue neglecting uh, your loved ones so that's the most essential part uh, of your life uh, but then what could be more important than your uh, well-being? And, and w- I know that many entrepreneurs do take uh you know burn burn the candle from the both ends. So I've done that a fair fair share. And then I think uh if you think from that point that what I've done mm, maybe I also have sac, uh, yeah, maybe I, I have sacrificed also uh some of my own time that I haven't give up in, cer- so in certain things I should have give up earlier on. Uh, so I've, I've in a way sacrificed unnecessary time uh, that I could have just said that okay, here's the line. This is we, this is a line we don't cross. So those are maybe the uh, biggest ones. Yes, I've. Lost money. Uh, I've done my fair share, but it, it, it has nothing to do with sacrifices. I think the sacrifice you only have one life, uh, and how well you live that. So, so, yeah, that's the most most important thing.
1: Uh, you mentioned as well that there's been some. Um, some diagnosed illness which uh, has been uh, one of the defining factors in your life do you want to elaborate and tell what it is
0: yeah um, i've always been open, and i think this is something that i think we should be more open as a society for people's challenges uh, on different areas so i i've been diagnosed with adhd uh, when I was around a bit more than 30. So, uh, to be, to be honest, uh, my life before that was, uh, truly a, a, a night between Tuesday and Sunday. So, so it really was quite chaotic. Uh, and I, I, I always thought that, uh, I was a bit different than the others. There's nothing wrong with my cognitive capabilities. Uh, Quite the contrary, I always felt that everything was easy as such. Uh, But then on the other hand, um, my concentration isn't as good as it could be uh, on a normal person. And people who know ADHD, uh, they also know that it could be a, a, a strong force uh, for many entrepreneurs, for example, so it's uh, it is not uh, let's say it's not a diagnosis or illness or, or that that actually makes you somehow uh, absent-minded uh, or scatterbrained all the time. But it actually does two things. You are either very sharp if you're very uh, if you get uh interested on something, if you get uh highly motivated uh, excited, so your brain works like a uh a race, it's like ratio sharp. And then on the other hand, when the exciting thing ends so so you, you become very slow <laughs> to to be honest that uh uh, with the <clears throat> with the surrounding with the loved loved ones, uh, so they often have uh, hard time to understand when when I might be uh, working on a slow mode. Uh, so so it's a demanding for your surroundings and there's a lot of people uh, that are actually uh, shamed uh, of being uh, of having ADHD. There's a lot of people who end up with uh, different kinds of uh, problems with alcohol or, or drugs or something. But it could be a driving force also. And I think the openness that, that we talk more openly on, on the matter, uh, it would be really uh, crucial that people tell that, hey, it is, it is what it is. You could be as clever as the next man. But you have that challenge, so it's very important to understand to openly communicate it. So I met my uh, current spouse, who I love dearly. So so I uh, I told her immediately that this is this is a uh, how should I say this is a feature in me, uh, and and it is something I I need to work every day with. Uh, it it also is something that needs to be taken uh, into consideration when when I'm uh, running a company, that my strengths are uh, on, on things to be motivated. Uh, I might be really driving uh, change in the company. I might be really uh, you know, all over the place, but in a positive way. But then, for example, we early on in Sniffy, we decided that, Oh, I felt, personally even, I felt that I needed a right-hand person that would be uh, spot-on, uh, always on the matter, and could hold uh, the operations in, in, her, you know, in her hands. And we, we hired Subi. And that was uh, a conscious decision to see that, that the strengths that I had, uh, the company could utilize very well being very creative, being uh, interested in people, being uh, a driving force, uh, always with new ideas. But then it could be that the, uh, a little less exciting tasks would be something that you know no one does. And what's most important in a company? It's that it goes like a train. So after we hired Suvi, We noticed quite quickly that our company also started to do that kind of steady growth, uh, meaning that our current uh, customer base started to uh, be more happy, more persistent uh, on using our service. And there was less and less churn all the time. Mm And also then I had the time to concentrate more on building uh, the product, building the sales, building the marketing. Uh, and now we are picking up also on that front, getting new businesses also. But in a SaaS business that we are currently working, the main idea is to keep your current customers happy and keep them growing and add on a few, uh, few new ones all the time. So So that's... That's something that I really encourage that if if people have that kind of challenges, so all of these challenges, they have negatives uh, or they have pros and they have cons. And in my case, I've been fairly open in all of the uh, workplaces I've been or or with any relationship that I tell quite bluntly uh, that this is what it is. And I, I think people should be honest because then there's no stigma uh, of having any any kind of uh, diagnosis in, in today's world because people can still make a success even though they would have an ADHD.
1: If you could leave a note to yourself in a high school, uh, what would it say?
0: That's a good question. What would I tell my younger self? Um... I, uh, do you do you want to hear what I would love to say, or what I actually would say? Both. So, <laughs> what I would love to say uh, to to the um, as a like as a parent to a kid, I would love to say that hey, take it easier and read more. Uh, that would be what I would love to say, but. As me, I know they would, you know, it wouldn't really be uh, something I would react. Uh, but as a me now to my younger self, I would actually say that, Hey, sit down and listen to yourself.
1: So what would happen? What do you think would happen if you would actually heed the advice?
0: Yeah, uh, I I honestly think that if if the young me could hear hear me well uh, or would be open to listen, uh, he would sit down and and maybe notice how his behavior could be changed, uh, but really understanding. Uh, why he does the things he does. I think that's the most critical, that, that it took years uh, for me that I noticed my, that I, I was different uh, and all, all the people who know me, they know that I was a bit different. Uh, but it was something that at that time people just felt, uh, for example, in school, that the teachers, teachers always felt that, you know, I was the one doing bad things, you know, uh, going to stuck in the school after, after everyone else left. Uh, in, instead of someone coming to, hey, I really sit down that, uh, and helping you that, okay, I noticed that you have a bit of struggling concentrate on the things you're not that interested in. But I noticed that in the things that you are really interested you are actually the best in the class. So, so instead of trying to uh, make you fit I would have hoped that by, by either me understanding uh, what are the strengths I should be concentrating uh, or someone else maybe that in that case uh, a teacher so I. Uh, could have found my strengths earlier on. Uh, so, so that's maybe, that's a good question. And, and honestly, finding my strengths more earlier on uh, would have probably made my life different. Would, I, would it make it uh, any better? Don't think so, uh, but, but different.
1: What is your favorite word? My Favorite word,
0: that's a good question. Maybe Rakas uh, it's, It means uh, a, love, a a dear or loved one uh, in Finnish, and thats that's a word that it can only be used if you have a true special relationship with a person. And I don't mean uh, that I, I would say to to my uh, spouse or my kids. Uh, that only but but I, that I could say to my parents I could say to my friends I could say I could even say to my team members in a certain tone of voice that rakas uh, so that the other, other person really understands that they are important to me as a person not to me as a managing director or, or founder or anything but as a person you mean the world to me. So, uh, rakas, yeah, that would be the word.
1: What is your least favorite word? Good question.
0: I don't really, I don't really have a single word I hate. Uh, but I do. If, if let's say, uh, let's turn it up a bit other way around. But I do hate when someone deliberately uses words that. Uh, the other person listening cannot understand. And and that's any word that is used for raising your importance or superiority uh, against the listener. uh, I think those are uh, my least favorite words.
1: What turns you on creatively, spiritually or emotionally?
0: Maybe that comes back
1: to uh, also to Veen. Uh,
0: as I said to you that, that if we felt that something was humoristic uh, and meaningful uh, and something worth doing. So if I find that the thing is humoristic, meaningful and worth doing, I I definitely get motivated. And that's where my where I get my spirits really to. Uh, that kind of uh, really sharp, uh, razor sharp uh, focus on doing things creatively, uh, living uh, passionately, uh, loving my spouse passionately, so uh, loving my kids passionately. So, so I, I love when there's laughter uh, and we do something. We live our lives that we feel that there's a meaning, and and we do things that we think that are fun and and
1: worth doing what turns you off
0: simply this is easy to say selfish self-centered and greedy people those that's just there's no words to that
1: what is your favorite curse word
0: and i use it quite a lot
1: what sound or noise do you love
0: I love uh, uh, I lo- love the sound of wind in the summertime, sound of wind in birch leaves.
1: What sound or noise do you hate? Sharp noises. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I would be happily an artist. An artist. What, what profession would you not like to do?
0: I wouldn't. I wouldn't love to. Uh, this was actually something I said even today in the morning. I wouldn't want to be a legal representative for serious criminals.
1: If you could be a co-founder of any startup in any era, which one would you choose? Mm.
0: That would be. Uh, that would be something to do with motorsports or, or motors. Uh, I don't know. Maybe maybe something to do with uh, the first Formula One uh, companies or or the the companies running uh, the World Rally Championships cars. Uh, yeah, that would be really a dream come true as a as a the small boy that loved rallying.
1: Any final words for the audience? Can be funny words, uh, crazy words, or just uh, words of wisdom?
0: Anyone who's thinking about uh, becoming an entrepreneur, so do it today.